ThriveMarket.com. Healthy living made easy. Guaranteed savings on your favorite organic brands delivered to your door. Healthy groceries shouldn't break the bank. Low price promise. Find a product cheaper elsewhere. Thrive will beat the price. How it works. Build your order. Shop 6,000 plus wholesome products. Curated just for members. Never run out. Get returning deliveries on a schedule personalized to you. You're in control. Easily add or remove items. Skip a delivery or pause anytime. Your new one-stop shop. From organic pantry staples to clean beauty to non-toxic home. Shop by over 70 diets and values. Gluten-free, ketogenic, organic, vegan, thoughtfully sourced seafood. Thrive Market is aligned closely with key industry watchdogs to identify partners who catch sustainable and traceable seafood. For $5 a month for a risk-free trial for 30 days. Fast-free coupon neutral shipping. No carbon net neutral shipping. Free gifts and samples. Every membership gives to someone in need. Better for you and the planet. Ethical and sustainable sourcing. Carbon neutral shipping. Zero waste warehouses. Recyclable compostable packaging. Thrive also gives every annual mentorship. Sponsors a free one for a family in need. Thrive's mission is to help make organic foods more accessible. Caviar.com. Treat yourself to a tasting at home. Introducing Petite Caviar 101. Caviar truffles and more. Providing the world's best caviar for over 30 years. Sustainable caviar, seasonal delights, boutique grocery. Family owned and operated. Proud to supply the highest quality caviar available for over 30 years. 100% sustainable caviar. With Israeli oyster, Belgian oyster, Idaho white sturgeon, Siberian sturgeon, paddlefish, Ikea. National overnight shipping guaranteed. National next day overnight shipping, Tuesday through Saturday. Same day local pickup. Local pickup and curbside for Seattle ready within two hours, Monday through Saturday. Next day local delivery, guaranteed next day local delivery for Seattle, Monday through Friday. Shop. Grocery for such items like Bellwell, Bellwether Farms, Cream Fresh, Betsy's Blink, Gluten-Free Betsy's Blink, Black Truffle Butter, White Truffle Oil, La Brujala, Yellowfin Fina Belly and Olive Oil, Russell's Original Spice Blend, Truffle Salt, Hosting and Wares, Mother of Pearl Caviar Spoon, Mother of Pearl Spoon with Blue Handle, Great Barrier Reef Petite Spoon with Pointed Tip, Round Mother of Pearl Palette, Caviar Presentoir with Old Burling Band, Old Sterling Band, Petite Mother of Pearl Caviar Spoon, St. Hilaire Modern Caviar Presentoir, Fructus Saturn Silver Plated Caviar Cup, Homemade Recipes and More, Mink Potato Rusty with Caviar and cream fresh, deviled quail eggs with caviar, blink with buckwheat. Good morning. Hope you're ready for part four of U.S. President number 34, Dwight D. Ike Eisenhower. Interstate Highway System. Eisenhower championed and signed the bill that authorized the interstate highway system in 1956. He justified the project through the 
Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 as essential to American security during the Cold War. It was believed that large cities would be targets in the possible war, so the highways were designed to facilitate their evacuation and ease military maneuvers. Eisenhower's goal to create improved highways was influenced by difficulties that he encountered during his involvement in the Army's 1919 Transcontinental Motor Convoy. He was assigned as an observer for the mission, which involved sending a convoy of Army vehicles coast to coast. His subsequent experience with the German Autobahn Limited access roads during the concluding stages of World War II convinced him of the benefits of an interstate highway system. The system could also be used as a runway for airplanes, which could, would be beneficial to war efforts. Franklin D. Roosevelt put the system to place, into place with the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1944. He thought that an interstate highway system would be beneficial for military operations and would also provide a measure of continued economic growth for the nation. The, Legislation initially installed in Congress over the issuance of bonds to finance the project, but the legislative effort was renewed and Eisenhower signed the law in June 1956. Foreign policy. In 1953, the Republican Party's old guard presented Eisenhower with a with a dilemma by insisting he disavow the Yalta agreements as beyond the constitutional authority of the executive branch. However, the death of Joseph Stalin in March 1953 made the matter a moot point. At this time, Eisenhower gave his chance for peace speech in which he attempted unsuccessfully to forestall the nuclear arms race with the Soviet Union by suggesting multiple opportunities presented by peaceful uses of nuclear materials. Biographer Stephen Ambrose opined that this was the best speech of Eisenhower's presidency. Nevertheless, the Cold War escalated during his presidency when the Soviet Union successfully tested a hydrogen bomb in late November 1955. Eisenhower, against the advice of Doles, decided to initiate a disarmament proposal to the Soviets in an attempt to make their refusal more difficult. He proposed that both sides agree to dedicate fissionable material away from weapons toward peaceful uses such as power generation. This approach was labeled Adams for Peace. The UN speech was well received, but the Soviets never acted upon it due to an overarching concern for the greatest stockpiles of nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal. Indeed, Eisenhower embarked upon a greater reliance on the use of nuclear weapons while reducing conventional forces and with the and with them overall defense budget, a policy formulated as a result of Project Solarium expressed in NSC 162-2. This approach became known as a new look and was initiated with defense cuts in late 1953. In 1955, American nuclear arms policy became one aimed primarily at arms control as opposed to disarmament, the failure of negotiations over arms until 1955 was due mainly to the refusal of the Russians to permit any sort of inspections. In talks located in London that year, they expressed their willingness to discuss inspections. The tables were then turned on Eisenhower when he responded with an unwillingness on the part of the U.S. to permit inspections. In May of that year, the Russians agreed to sign a treaty giving independence to Austria and paved the way for a Geneva summit with the U.S., U.K., and France. At the Geneva Conference, Eisenhower presented a proposal called Open Skies to facilitate disarmament, which included plans for Russia and the U.S. to provide mutual access to each other's skies for open surveillance of the military infrastructure. Russian leader Nikita Khrushchev dismissed the proposal out of hand. 
1954, Eisenhower articulated the domino theory in his outlook towards communism in Southeast Asia and also in Central America. He believed that if the communists were allowed to prevail in Vietnam, this would cause a succession of countries to fall into co communism from Laos to, through Malaysia and Indonesia, ultimately to India. Likewise, the fall of Guatemala would end that with the fall of neighboring Mexico. The year of the loss that year, the loss of North Vietnam to the communists and the rejection of his proposed European Defense Summary Community, EDC, were serious threats, but he remained optimistic in his opposition to, to the spread of communism, saying, Long faces don't win wars, as he had threatened the French with in their rejection of EDC. He afterwards moved to restore West Germany as a full NATO partner. In 1954, he also induced Congress to create an emergency fund for international affairs in order to support America's use of cultural diplomacy to strengthen international relations throughout Europe during the Cold War. With Eisenhower's leadership and those directions, CIA activities increased under the pretense of resisting the spread of communism in poor countries. The CIA in part deposed the leaders of Iran in Operation Ajax of Guatemala through Operation PB success and possibly the newly independent Republic of the Congo, Lepoville. In 1954, Eisenhower wanted to increase surveillance inside the Soviet Union with those recommendations. He authorized the deployment of 30 Lockheed U-2s sat a cost of $35 million, equal to $333.22 million in 2019. The Eisenhower administration also planned to the Bay of Pigs invasion to overthrow Fidel Castro in Cuba, which John F. Kennedy was left to carry out. Space Race Eisenhower and the CIA had known since at least January 1957, nine months before Sputnik, that Russia had the capability to launch a small payload into orbit and was likely to do so within a year. He may also probably have welcomed the Soviet satellite for its legal implications implications. By launching a satellite, the Soviet Union had in effect acknowledged that space was open to anyone who could access it without needing permission from other nations. On the whole, Eisenhower's support of the nation's fledging space program was officially modest until the Soviet launch of Sputnik in 1957, gaining the Cold War enemy enormous prestige around the world. He then launched a national campaign that funded not just space exploration, but a major strengthening of science and higher education. The Eisenhower administration determined to adopt a non-aggressive policy that would allow spacecrafts of any state to overfly all states, a region free of military posturing, and launch Earth satellites to explore space. His open skies policy attempted to legitimize illegal Lockheed U-2 flyovers and Project Gen Genet Genetrix while paving the way for spy satellite technology to orbit over sovereign territory. Who, however, Nikolai Bolganin and Nikita Khrushchev declined Eisenhower's proposal at the Geneva Conference in July 1955. In response to Sputnik being launched in October 1957, Eisenhower created NASA as, as a civilian space agency in October 1958, signed a landmark science education law, and improved relations with American scientists. Fear spread through the United States that the Soviet Union would invade and spread communism, Communism, so Eisenhower wanted to not only create a surveillance satellite to detect any threats, but ballistic missiles that would project protect the United States. In strategic terms, it was Eisenhower who devised the American basic strategy of nuclear deterrence based upon the triad of B-52 strategic bombers, land-based inter intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, and Polaris submarine-launched ballistic missiles, SLBMs. NASA planned 
planners projected that human spaceflight would pull the United States ahead of the space race as well as accomplishing their long-term goal. However, in 1960, an ad hoc panel on man in space concluded that man in space cannot be justified, as was too costly. Eisenhower later resented the space program and its gargantuan price tag. He was quoted as saying, anyone who would spend $40 billion in a race to the moon for national prestige is nuts. Korean War, Free China, and Red China In late 1952, Eisenhower went to Korea and discovered a military and political stalemate once in office. When the Chinese People's Volunteer Army began to build up in the Kaesong Sanctuary, he threatened to use nuclear force if an armistice was not concluded. His early military reputation in Europe was effective with the Chinese Communists, the National Security Council, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Strategic Air Command, SAC, devised detailed plans for nuclear war against Red China. With the death of Stalin in early March, March 1953, Russia's support for our Chinese Communist hardline weakened, and Red China decided to compromise on the prisoner issue. In July 1953, an armistice took effect with Korea with Korea divided along approximately the same boundary as in 1950. The armistice and boundary remain in effect today. The armistice included, despite opposition from Secretary Dole, South Korea President Syngman Rhee, and also within the Eisenhower's party, has been described by biographer Ambrose as the greatest achievement of the administration. Eisenhower had the insight to realize that unlimited war in the nuclear age was unthinkable and limited war was un unwinnable. A point of evidence in Eisenhower's campaign had been his endorsement of a policy of liberation for communism as opposed to a policy of containment. This remained in his preference despite the armistice with Korea. Throughout his terms, Eisenhower took a hard-line attitude toward Red China as demanded by conservative Republicans with the goal of driving a wedge between Red China and the Soviet Union. Eisenhower continued Truman's policy of recognizing the Republic of China, Taiwan, as a Legitimate government of China, not the Beijing, Beijing regime. That was, that was hard to say. There were localized flare-ups when the People's Liberation Army began shelling the islands of Kuomoi and Matsu in September 1954. Eisenhower received their recommendations embracing every variation of response to the aggression of the Chinese communists. He thought it essential to have every possible option available to him as the crisis unfolded. The Sino-American Mutual Defense Treaty with the Republic of China was signed in December 1954. He requested secure from Congress their Free China Resolution in January 1955, which gave Eisenhower unprecedented power in advance to use military force at any level of its choosing in defense of Free China and the Pescadores. The resolution bolstered the morale of the Chinese national and signed signal to Beijing that the U.S. was committed to holding the line. Eisenhower openly threatened the Chinese communists with use of nuclear weapons, authorized a series of palm tests labeled Operation Teapot. Nevertheless, he left the Chinese communists guessing as to the exact nature of his nuclear response. This allowed Eisenhower to accomplish all of his objectives, the end of this communist encroachment, the retention of the islands by the Chinese Nazis, and continued peace. Defense of the Republic of China from an invasion remains a core American policy. By the end of 1954, Eisenhower's military and foreign policy experts, the NSC, JCS, and State Department had unanimously urged him on no less than five occasions to launch an atomic attack against Red China, yet he consistently refused to do so and felt a distinct sense of accomplishment in having sufficient confronted communism while keeping world peace. Southeast Asia Early in 1953, the French asked Eisenhower to help in French Indonesia 
Indochina against the communists supplied from China who were fighting the first Indochina war. Isaiah sent Lieutenant John W. w. Iron Mike Old Daniel to Vietnam to study and assess the French forces there. Chief of Staff Matthew Ridgway dissuaded the President from intervening by presenting a comprehensive estimate of the massive military deployment that would be necessary. Isaiah stated prophetically that this war would absorb our troops by divisions. Eisenhower didn't did provide France with bombers and non-combat personnel. After a few months with no success by the French, he added other aircraft to drop Napalm for clearing purposes. Further requests for assistance for the French were to, agreed to, but only on conditions Eisenhower knew were impossible to meet Allied participation and congressional pr- approval. When the French fortress of Dien Bien Phu fell to the Vietnamese communists in May 1954, Eisenhower refused to interview despite urgings from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of, of the Vice President and the head of NCS. Eisenhower responded to the French defeat with the formation of the CETO, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization Alliance, with the UK, France, New Zealand, and Australia in defense of Vietnam against communism. At that time, the French and Chinese reconvened Geneva peace talks. Eisenhower agreed to agree. The U.S. would participate only as an observer. After France and the Communists agreed to a partition of Vietnam, Eisenhower rejected the agreement, offering military and economic aid to southern Vietnam. Ambrose argued that Eisenhower, by not participating in the Geneva Agreement, had kept the U.S. out of Vietnam. Nevertheless, with the formation of CETO, he had, in the end, put the U.S. back into the conflict. In late 1954, General J. Lawton, Collins was made ambassador to free Vietnam. The term South Vietnam came into use in 1955. They effectively elevated the country to sovereign status. Collins' instructions were to support the leader Ningo Dinh Diem in subverting communism by helping him to build an army and wage a military campaign in February 1955. Eisenhower dispatched the first American soldiers of Vietnam as military advisors to DM's army, after DM announced the formation of the Republic of Vietnam, RVM, commonly known as South Vietnam, in October, Eisenhower immediately recognized a new state and offered military, economic, and technical assistance. In the years that followed, Eisenhower increased the number of U.S. military advisors in South Vietnam to 900 men. This was due to North Vietnam's support of uprising in the South and concern the nation would fall. In May 1957, DM, then, then President of South Vietnam, made a state visit to the United States for 10 days. President Eisenhower pledged his continued support and a parade was held in DM's honor in New York City. Although DM was publicly praised and private Secretary of State John Fawcett Dulles considered that DM had been selected because there were no better alternatives. After the election of November 1960, Eisenhower, in briefing with John F. Kennedy, pointed out the communism threat in Southeast Asia as requiring prioritization in the next administration. Eisenhower told Kennedy he considered Laos the cork in the bottle with regard to the regional threat. Legitimation of Francois Spain. Legitimization of Francois Spain. The Pact of Madrid, signed on September 23, 1953, by Franco West Spain and the United States, was a significant effort to break international isolation of Spain after World War II. Together with the Concordat of 1953, this development came to a time when other victorious allies of World War II and much of the rest of the world remained hostile. For the 1946 United Nations condemnation of the Franco West regime to a fascist 
regime sympathetic to the cause of the former Axis powers and established with Nazi assistance. This accord took the form of three separate executive agreements that pledged the United States to furnish economic and military aid to Spain. The United States attorney was to be permitted to construct, it, construct and to utilize air and naval bases on Spanish territory. The Middle East and Eisenhower Doctrine Even before he was inaugurated, Eisenhower accepted a request from the British government to restore Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, to power. He therefore authorized a central intelligence agent to overthrow Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. This resulted in an increase of strategic control over Iranian oil by U.S. and British companies. In November 1956, Eisenhower forced and then to the combined British, French, and Israeli invasion of Egypt in response to the Suez crisis, receiving praise from Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser. Sometimes he condemned the brutal Soviet invasion of Hungary in response to the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. He publicly disavowed his allies at the United Nations and used financial and diplomatic pressure to make them withdraw from Egypt. Eisenhower explicitly defended his strong position against Britain and France in his memoirs, which were published in 1965. <laughs> After the Suez Crisis, the United States became the protective of unstably friendly governments in the Middle East via the Eisenhower Doctrine. Designed by Secretary of State Doles, it held that U.S. would be prepared to use armed force to counter aggression from any country controlled by international communism. Further, the United States would not provide economic and military aid and, if necessary, use military force to stop the spread of communists in the Middle East. Eisenhower applied the doctrine in 1957-1958 by dispensing economic aid to shore up the Kingdom of Jordan and by encouraging Syria's neighbors to consider military options against it. More dramatically, in July 1958, he sent 15,000 Marines and soldiers to Lebanon as part of Operation Blue Bat, a non-combat peacekeeping mission to stabilize the pro-wrestling government and to prevent a radical revolution from sweeping over that country. The mission proved a success and the Marines departed three months later. The deployment came in response to the urgent request of Lebanese President Camille Camon after sectarian violence had erupted in the country. Washington considered the military intervention successful since it was brought about regional stability, weakened sovereign Soviet influence, and intimidated the Egypt, Egyptian and Syrian governments whose anti-West political position had hardened after the Suez crisis. Most Arab countries were skeptical about the Eisenhower Doctrine because they considered Zionist imperialism the real danger. However, they did take the opportunity to obtain free money and weapons. Egypt and Syria, supported by the Soviet Union, openly opposed the initiative. However, Egypt received American aid until the Six-Day War in 1967. As the Cold War deepened, those sought to isolate the Soviet Union by building regional alliances and nations against it. Critics sometimes called it Pactomania. 1960 U-2 Incident On May 1, 1960, a U.S. one-man U-2 spy plane was reportedly shot down at high altitude over Soviet airspace. The flight was made to gain photo intelligence before the scheduled opening of an East-West Summit conference, which had been scheduled in Paris 15 days later. Captain Francis Gary Powers had bailed out of his aircraft and was captured after parachuting down onto Russian soil. Four days after Powers disappeared, the Eisenhower administration had NASA issue a very detailed press release noting that an aircraft had gone missing north of Turkey. It speculated that the pilot might have fallen unconscious while the autopilot was still engaged and falsely claimed that the pilot reported over the over the emergency frequency that he was experiencing oxygen difficulties. 
Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev announced that a spy plane had been shot down, but intentionally made no reference to the pilot. As a result, the Eisenhower administration said that the pilot had died in the crash, authorized the release of a cover story claiming that the plane was a weather research aircraft, which had unintentionally strayed into Soviet airspace after the pilot had radioed difficulties with oxygen equipment while flying over Turkey. The Soviets put Captain Paris on trial and displayed parts of the U-2, which had been recovered almost fully intact. The, power, the Four Power Paris Summit in May 1960 with Eisenhower, Nikita Khrushchev, Harold McMillan, and Charles de Gaulle collapsed because of the incident. Eisenhower refused to accede to Khrushchev's demands that he apologize. Therefore, Khrushchev would, would not take part in the summit up until this event. Eisenhower felt he had been making progress towards better relations with the Soviet Union. Nuclear arms production in Berlin were to have been discussed at the summit. Eisenhower stated it had all been ruined because of that stupid YouTube business. The affair was an embarrassment for United States prestige. Further, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a lengthy inquiry into the U-2 incident in Russia. Captain Paris made a forced confession and apology. On August 19, 1960, Paris was convicted of espionage and sentenced to imprisonment. On February 10, 1962, Paris was exchanged for Rudolf Abel in Berlin and returned to the U.S. Civil rights. While President Truman had begun the process of desegregating the armed forces in 1948, actual implementation had been slow. Eisenhower made clear his stance in his first State of the Union address in February 1953, stating, saying, I propose to use whatever authority exists in the office of the President to end segregation in the District of Columbia, including the federal government and any segregation in the armed forces when he encountered opposition from the services. He used government control of military spending to force a change through a steady, wherever federal funds are extended, I do not see how any American can justify a discrimination in the expenditure of those funds. When Robert B. Anderson, Eisenhower's first Secretary of the Navy, argued that the U.S. Navy must recognize the customs and usages prevailing in the certain geographic areas of our country, which the Navy had no part in creating, Eisenhower overruled him. We have not taken what, and we shall not take a single backward step. There must be no second-class citizens in this country. The administration declares racial discrimination a national security issue as communists around the world use the racial discrimination and history of violence in the U.S. as a point of propaganda attack. Eisenhower told District of Columbia officials to make Washington a model for the rest of the country integrating black and white public school children. He proposed the Congress of Civil Rights Act of 1957 and of 1960 and signed those acts into law. The 1957 Act for the first time established a permanent civil rights office inside the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Commission to hear testimony on abuses of voting rights, although both acts were much weaker than subsequent civil rights legislation. They constitute the first significant civil rights act since 1875. In 1957, the state of Arkansas refused to honor a federal court order to integrate their public school system stemming from the Brown decision. Eisenhower demanded that Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus obey the court order. When Faubus balked, the president placed the Arkansas National Guard under federal control and sent in the 101st Airborne Division. They escorted and protected nine black students' entry to Little Rock Central High School and all-white public school. Marking the first time since the Reconstruction era, the federal government had used federal troops in the South to enforce the U.S. Constitution. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote to Eisenhower to thank him for his actions, writing, The overwhelming majority of Southerners, Negro, and White stand firmly behind your resolute action to restore law and order in Little Rock.
Eisenhower's administration contributed to the McCarthyist lavender scare with President Eisenhower indul- ensuing his- issuing his executive order 10450 in 1953. Dis- during Eisenhower's presidency, thousands of lesbian and gay applicants were barred from federal employment, and over 5,000 federal employees were fired under suspicions of being homosexual. From 1947 to 1961, the number of uh, the number of firings based on sexual orientation were far greater than those formed for membership in the Communist Party and government officials intentionally campaigned to make homosexual synonymous with communist traitor, such, a, such that LGBT people were treated as a national security threat stemming from the belief they were susceptible to blackmail and exploitation. Stay tuned for part five of U.S. President number 34, Dwight D. Ike Eisenhower.